HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Keeper. And today we're going to talk about something really cool, some new technology. And you know, I don't usually do technology things, largely because I don't understand them. But this particular technology is so user-friendly that we can all enjoy it. Uh, my guest is Jay Caney. He is the Associate Director at Conservation Northwest, which is based in Omak, Washington, Prior to that, he spent 31 years working for the Natural Resources Conservation Services, which, in case you're not aware, is a little-known branch of the USDA that does an unbelievable job of protecting, conserving, and stewarding our open spaces and our waterways. And uh, honestly, shout out to all NRCS workers. I, myself, work with the NRCS because I'm on the board of another organization that probably many people have never heard of, and that is your local conservation district. And that is an organization that is also um, supplied with funds by the USDA. And we work a lot with NRCS to try to help people both conserve their land, pass their land on to new uh, farming uh, opportunities, uh, conserve our coastlines, our timber, our forestry, et cetera. So um, he, uh, Jay was also um, on the Washington State Fish and Wildlife Commission for seven years. So he's deeply steeped in all things conservation, stewardship, and maintaining um, a healthy, prosperous, economically viable landscape around us. So Jay, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Um, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your job and what you do as the associate director, and then we'll start talking about virtual fencing. Oh, thank you, Katie. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, so after those years with NRCS, I had a, a lot of skills. Of, you know, I worked a lot with ranchers and farmers and kind of the same skill set that Conservation Northwest wanted because a lot of the areas we work in to connect, protect, and restore are in private grounds and in farm grounds and ranch lands where there's a lot of habitat needs. There's a lot of connectivity issues. And so um, it kind of made sense for me to retire from one organization and go to work for this great nonprofit that gets a lot done with, you know, a smaller organization. But it's right. been very exciting working for them. I I've worked in wolf recovery when wolves came into our state to help ranchers deal with some of the problems that happened there, mm. as well as eventually I got uh, moved into this new position, which was a, it's our Sage Lands Heritage Program, 
uh, associate director. And so we have a lot of different programs that focus on different aspects of connectivity in our state. But the one that we hadn't spent as much time on was the Sagelands area or the Shrub Step. And that's what got me involved with um, the work that I'm doing now and really enjoying it. And when Virtual Fence came along, I thought, wow, this is the best thing <laughs> since sliced bread, you know. It really just- is. I mean, that piece that I read in Manga Bay Times, which, by the way, people, is, is a free and fantastic international newsletter <clears throat> that comes out and you can access it anytime you want. And that's where one of the guys who's an editor there sent me this article. And I was just totally blown away by this idea. So, Virtual fencing is what we're talking about. What does that mean, Jay? Well, it's a way to put um, a barrier on the landscape that will contain livestock or keep livestock out of areas that's not really on the landscape at all. It's virtual. So it's a it's a training mechanism. The cows wear a collar. There's base stations that send signals to those collars, essentially put invisible fences across the landscape so that the cow, when it nears that that invisible fence, gets a beep, 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 a warning signal, then a shock. So it learns to not go through that fence rather mm-hmm. than have an actual hard fence on the landscape. So it's it's like a dog. It's just like a dog fence, like an electric, you know, what are those virtual fencing for dogs around your yard? It's exactly the same concept, right? Same concept, a little bit different scale. This covers, um, for instance, one tower or base station. Um, can shoot out the signal up to 10-mile radius. So that's covering about 40,000 acres. So you don't have to bury any wire. There's really nothing on the landscape except there's a fence in the collar that the cow is wearing. So the Mm -hmm. whole herd has collars on, the mother cows, and they learn to respect that fence, and it keeps them in their place or keeps them out of areas like riparian areas or sage grouse lek sites or nesting sites. Mm -hmm. So just an amazing tool. It's not built to be a perimeter fence. That's first off is if you, you try to use it as a perimeter fence, you're not going to keep the neighbor's cows out of your property. Right. So it's the cross fencing is where it really shines, but cross fences across the landscape that allows ranchers to move their cattle in a way that's beneficial to the grass and their herd. Right. Incredible. Well, we're going to talk more about that for in a second, but <clears throat> just for example, when you're talking about, okay, so it's your particular property, it's not, you, you've still got your perimeter fence up, but you might have, I don't know, 500 acres for grazing, right? So this means that you don't have to have any individual little fences in between that. What, what kind of, like how many miles of conventional fence are we talking about in a typical ranch? Well, a, a lot of where this has really cut on is out in the West, where sure. a lot of landowners have their cows in at home to the home place during the winter and feed hay. And they put out into very large um, grazing allotments. And sometimes those are on Forest Service land. Sometimes they're on state land. Sometimes uh-huh. they're their own, their own property as well. But some of these grazing tenures can be, you know, 20, 30,000 acres or more. Wow. And so to really graze that properly, we've always known the concept through NRCS or conservation districts or whatever that you can't just turn them out and let them go. You have to move them through a series of paddocks or pastures um, in a way that's beneficial to the grass and beneficial to the livestock so that you don't overgraze and you don't undergraze. Sure. The problem is hard fences are so expensive, ranchers just can't keep up. They can't really get it done with the cost of hard fencing, which is about, right now, it's running around $28,000 a mile to put up a barbed wire fence. $28,000 a mile? Yep. 
who has that money? It's not like people are getting rich on cattle right now. Let's face uh, it. That's right. So a lot of the fences in the West, you know, they're old. They were put up years ago, and they're they're either dilapidated or falling down. Or what's happened in our case, um, huge fires came through and really burned a lot of our fences up. And landowners now are facing this unbelievable cost to replace them. There are some government programs to help, but still, it creates this barrier on the landscape. And that's why Conservation Northwest is excited about this, because if we can remove barriers um, and improve connectivity for all kinds of wildlife, keep sage grouse from hitting barbed wire fences, keep deer and elk from getting tangled up in them, keep antelope from even, you know, worrying about having to get through a fence, which really a fence will stop species in, in, in their tracks in cases like antelope. So this is just a win-win for the ranchers. It's a cheaper way to put those fences they need on the landscape. Right. It's a win-win for the environmental groups that you know want to see connectivity maintained. Right, right. What why let's let's unpack that for a second. Why why does that matter that 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 uh, wild animals can move freely through the landscape? Is it simply because it helps keep the fencing in good repair, or is it also an ecological benefit to that? Well, ranchers would love the idea, yes, that it will keep their fences in good repair if they're not, you know, they don't have to go out and repair hard fences. But right. from an environmental landscape scale, wildlife, you know, needs the ability to move across the landscape. Um, in particular, migrating herds of elk, deer, antelope, but all sorts of wildlife. Um, has to have that ability to move in order to maintain genetic viability. Um, mm. If they get pulled up to where a species only exists in a certain area or is cut off from their migratory routes, they're not only going to lose their feed sources and their cover sources during winter when they have to migrate, but they're going to also lose genetic viability. And eventually a species that loses that kind of can blink out of existence. So, and, and for instance, in Washington, we don't have a lot of shrub step habitat. We have a lot of species that need it. And so we'll have pockets of habitat and areas of linkages between those habitats that we've got to keep open for the, to allow that permeable landscape to allow that movement. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. What, what compared to, Kench, I mean, you said, you mentioned in the beginning that you have to, you have to install some sort of a tower, signal tower. So you're not laying wire underground, but you do have to invest in this tower and the collars. So how does that compare in cost to a conventional fence? Well, that's the best part. That's what really got us excited and gets ranchers excited. Uh, a quick example, if you took a square mile, that's 640 acres, and tried to fence all the way around it so you could keep animals in or out, that'd be four miles of fence at roughly $30,000 a mile, so that's $120,000. Wow. Um, to cover that, same square mile and you put up one tower if it was perfectly flat your tower would cover 30,000 acres and you could put hundreds and hundreds of miles of fence wherever you want take them down in five minutes basically take them off the computer out of the collar or using the computer take them out of the collar so it's it's hard to say the scale of this is what's really impressive um just on a rough scale it's probably one one hundredth the cost of barbed wire fence Wow. When you're at a scale of like what I just described, grazing three or four hundred animals on twenty or thirty thousand acre, it's it's one one hundredth the cost. So it's it's f- fabulous in terms of uh, cost benefit ratios for them. Well, and, I, I can't know. imagine that ranchers are not flocking to install this technology. 
Like, but what happens, Jay, if you have like a major power outage or something? Like, what if it, your tower gets hit by a th- lightning strike or or there's a bad storm or a fire? I guess the same thing is what happens when you have a regular fence, but still. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the towers, and they, they're really more like a base station. They're not a big thing. They're, I used to call them like a rabbit hut for the flagpole. They're not that big, wow. but you call them towers to begin with. Now they call them base stations. Um they come with their own solar panel, so you're not worried about the power. Oh, um, cool. They're, they're, one tower is $12,500 installed. Um, the collars are leased at a cost of about $50 a year to lease the collar. Um, that includes the battery. And that's because the collar is continually being updated and new improvements are being put in, and the company mm-hmm. doesn't want to um, have you have to rebuy callers all the time and the company sure. that's right now working in america is called vents v-e-n-c-e right you know so let me let me do the math and i'm not very good at that um <laughs> but you say you have 500 cows at 50 per so that's twenty five thousand yeah. dollars plus your little twelve thousand. so that's 30 something thousand and compare that people to what jay just said twenty eight thousand dollars a mile of yeah, fencing you can, you, can, you can cover a lot of ground yeah for thirty thousand with virtual and that's going to buy you one mile of barbed wire fence that right. isn't necessarily going to stay there it could burn up it could be um run over it could by be trampled be made, right. you have to maintain it so yeah the 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 cost benefit is amazing and you mentioned why you know ranchers should be flocking to this and they're really starting to but it takes time for new technology to catch on. Usually what people and ranchers like to see is somebody tries it and right. then they get to talk about it and see it on the ground. Um, and then they start to, to you know say, okay, I think this can be work. I can make it to work too. So that's what Conservation Northwest did is we tried to get some pilot projects going so that people mm-hmm. could see it on the ground. We had some great ranchers that stepped up to do it. And we created several pilot projects across the state and we had some funding sources available created by the legislature that allowed them to pay for virtual fences mm-hmm. on a cost share basis because they came after fires. And so, you know, and then we actually, we actually bought some base stations to get some of our first pilots going. And there's been um, in Washington, I think we have about eight or nine producers now that are, have, are working with the virtual fence. And that includes on forest service ground. Um, it will in, um, include being on Department of Natural Resources ground. And eventually, I think we're going to have some projects going on the Department of Wildlife lands as well that have grazing allotments on them. Uh-huh. You know, here in the East, we don't really understand <laughs> the concept of grazing allotments because people here, if you have livestock, they're in a pretty small space. I mean, you might have 50 or 100 or 200 acres, but that's that's probably about as big as it gets around here, at least certainly in Rhode Island. Um, and probably in a lot of New England. Of course, we don't do a lot of beef cattle here. We do more dairy. But So this would work, obviously, for dairy cows. This would work for sheep. Does it work for sheep and pigs if you pasture your pigs? It has. They haven't gone that direction yet. You know, sheep have that insulating layer of wool that there's some yeah. problems associated with getting a shock through it. Right. Um, you know, they may in the future, but right now they've got their hands full um, just in the U.S., um, producing or working with the ranchers that are lining up. Two years ago, when we got involved in this, there was, I'd say, four or five ranchers across the whole U.S. that had, you know, stepped up and were doing this. Some folks out in Montana, I think some folks down in uh, Colorado. 
Mm -hmm. because we got our pilot project going here in Washington. And that grew really rapidly to where I think by this spring, um, there was 140 ranchers across the West uh, involved with virtual fence. And now there's more like 180. So it's really taken off. Um, our government agencies, you know, whether it's BLM or the Forest Service, are already involved in projects across the West. So, you know, but it still takes people to, to look at it and see it and hear about it and understand it. There's a computer side to this, a herd manager software that, you know, ranchers have to use and learn how to build fences on a computer, not out on right. the landscape. Um, but the best thing is the system also has GPS capacity. So it consists of the, the base station, the callers, and a satellite that gives you GPS locations. So ranchers not only can move their cows as they need to build as many fences as they want, but they know where their animals are any given time, any given day. Mm -hmm. And that's huge in this kind of topography where animals can get lost pretty easy or get outside fences. Um, there's no there's no fence that holds animals in 100%. Right. But now we have virtual, if they're getting out, you know where they're getting out and you can go take care of it. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, that whole idea, because otherwise you have to ride your fence. And isn't that what cowboys did traditionally? Like that was their job, aside from herding the animals to wherever they're going to be processed. But their job was to ride the fence and make sure that the fence was intact. That's my understanding. And so yeah. now you just do that on your computer. You just sit there, look at where the fence is supposed to be, and and whether or not your cows are inside or outside of that perimeter that your shock collar essentially is dictating to them. You yeah. know, I wanted to ask you one other thing. Do you think that technology will ever evolve to the point where it's just an ear tag? I mean, so much other information is stored in ear tags on livestock. Well, I, I wonder why they couldn't put this software into an ear tag. Who's to say no to technology? But right now that, that collar carries quite a bit of electronic uh, equipment inside of it. Now, basically, it has a cell phone it's for GPS location. It has gotcha. all kinds of transmitters. So it, they've gotten it down to as small as they can get it. Mm -hmm. An ear tag can be used to locate your animal. That technology is out there that you can just put an ear tag in. Um, it's a kind of GPS capacity, and so you can find your animal. But the whole concept of building fences in the collar that are on the landscape, you know, that takes a little more space. So I don't know sure. if I ever get small. Oh, I don't know. It seems to me the way, I mean, right now we're talking about implanting chips in our, you know, eyeglasses or even in our eyes. I don't know. I mean, you know, technology is moving so fast for an old Luddite like me. It's like, whoa, this is, you know, this stuff is well, crazy. <laughs> I'll tell you what, when ranchers finally get, the, you know, their head around how this works, that's a lot of the words I hear is, whoa, this is neat stuff. Yeah. And, um, there's there's some glitches in it. Sure, it's new technology. It was a startup company, and actually, they've been the Vince has been uh, merged in with Merck now, a pharmaceutical company that has an animal husbandry division. Oh so yes. You will see more technology in those colors. It has to do with the animal's health and well-being. Um, they're mm. you know worried about if it's under stress. They're worried about if it's uh, you know, in its heat cycle. You know, there's all kinds of things that can be built in now um, with that backing. And there's actually another company. Uh, Gallagher, I think, is going to be releasing their virtual fence version in the U.S. this spring. So it's it's really starting to catch on and grow. It's not going to, just so anybody listening that is a cowboy, it's not going to do away with your job. There's still going to be that work to be done on horseback. You know, there's perimeter fences because these aren't built for that. Right. Uh, and there's, you know, 
when you put a virtual fence on the landscape and then you take it off, that's when the cows are going to move through that hole in the in their in their pasture to the new pasture. And once they're all over there, the fence is going to pop back up behind them. And you can schedule all that to happen without you even being there. But sometimes you're going to have to encourage those animals through that opening because they now they've think been trained that there's a fence there. And even though they're not getting now, they still think it might be a fence. So you're still going to have to typically move those animals through um, physically. Um, and over time, they'll get the idea that that when that beep doesn't occur, then they can go through that opening. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because you were saying, like, it, first the animal gets a warning sound, and then it subsequently, if it continues to press forward, it will get the shock. Yes. And you so, you can't put a driving fence, behind, virtual fence behind a herd that would actually beep, 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 shock coming from behind at the speed they're grazing, which is about, you know, a foot a minute. And so that would help that you could use that to move your cows. However, that uses up a lot of battery life. And so the batteries are, are fit to run or last for about five to eight months. But if you're using them a lot, that means it's being, you know, the caller is actually waking up and beep, 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 shocking. Then that battery life goes down. Right. And you don't want to have to swap out that battery every three months or four months. Because no, assuming you, do, you have like 500, 600, 1,000 animals. That could be, yeah, very time consuming and kind of expensive. Because I yeah. assume you have to, if you, you probably get a one, one extra battery a year, right? And then if you keep running through them, you're going to have to pay, I would suppose. Yeah, most, most people will, when they have the animals in the chute in the spring, this is a typical rotation, that's when they'd give them the collar with a fresh battery. And then they're going to put them out on some range, um, whether it's um, pr- public or private, for let's say April, maybe May, May, June, July, August, September. So that's five months, you know, bring them in September or October. So that battery is going to work fairly well through that grazing season. And then when they come in in the fall, either take the collar off then or wait again until spring to take the collar off and put a new battery in and put it back on. Gotcha, gotcha. We're going to take a short break now for a sponsor drop. We'll be right back with Jay Caney talking more about virtual fencing. Stay tuned. This episode is supported by HRN business member MarketLink. MarketLink develops technology that works for farmers, markets, and consumers. Since 2013, MarketLink has helped more than 3,000 farmers and markets accept electronic payments, including credit, debit, and SNAP sales. MarketLink supports HRN's creative educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Okay. Now, All right. on to the next thing. So, because um, we're back doing the show again. So, I, yep. you mentioned something about how it can keep cattle out of waterways, riparian field areas, which yep. is, you know, like when you have a stream running through a pasture or something like that. What, why is that important to do that? So, the history like, of grazing. What's so bad about that? <laughs> well, it's, 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 um, the history of grazing has been, you know, to use the landscape, you need a water source and you need to divide that yeah. into pastures so that you can move your animals through the pastures on a rotational basis. And you need water in each of those pastures. Right. So a lot of times if there's a creek or a stream, um, you know, they'll, they'll take advantage of that and the cows will get into that water. But that's where you can cause damage to the banks. You can cause damage to the vegetation or actually having the animals right in the creek. 
So this gives you an ability to fence out these riparian areas, but allow them a spot to access water that can be moved on a regular basis. So you're not piling up a whole bunch of animals on one spot all season long. Plus it can keep animals more up on the range ground, but they need to be grazing and utilizing rather than always staying, you know, hanging out and being around the water source. Mm -hmm. So from an environmental standpoint, there's tons of agencies that are trying to um, make sure that ranchers keep their cows out of creeks wherever possible. So this just uh, this just enables a, gives them a tool to do it at a at a cost that you you could never get done um, previous. Especially yeah, right. in a forested situation, you're trying to put fences around riparian areas, and trees are falling on them all winter. So every every spring, you know, you're basically rebuilding huge sections of fence. Mm-hmm. So that's not going to have to happen anymore with the virtual fence. God, this is just, I mean, it's a fantastic advance in managing, you know, large tracts of land. I mean, I I just can't get over how great this is. Um, What, talk about a little bit about how, why and how, I mean, I know many of my listeners already know this, but just in case people are not that familiar, like the whole concept of rotational grazing and why it's important to keep animals moving through pasture rather than staying in one area until, you know, basically they've eaten it down to the ground. Like what are the, you know, you, there's a lot of other critters who are living there besides the cattle, right? Exactly. And, um, you know, a lot of people think that this, they're not compatible, but there's a lot of research and we're involved with some of that working with WSU folks that are studying that. If you pay attention to how the grass grows and when it should be grazed and what was the historical grazing by native grazers as compared to now what's being grazed with cattle on the landscape, they can work together. It can it can be worked out, but it takes fences to make that happen because that grass um, needs to be grazed. It, it evolves under a grazing system, you know, but it doesn't, doesn't do it any good if it's overgrazed and or undergrazed. Grass that never gets grazed, let's say you exclude animals out totally, that's not going to have as much... Um, nutrient in it. It's not going to have that fresh green growth that comes up after grazing. So what Mm -hmm. you're really looking at, the the technology is, you know, an animal should move through a pasture and and bite that grass once and keep moving to where it's not nibbling it down all the way to the ground. That's going to take away the ability of that plant to put nutrients into the root system. And so your plant's eventually going to get old and decadent and not be productive and eventually could die if it gets overgrazed. Likewise, undergrazing doesn't create that photosynthesis that helps that plant get going again. That biting, that grazing is part of how it evolved. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's exciting now to think about um, if you do this correctly and you can really manage those animals to move through a landscape, it can be good for the animals. Weight gain wise, it can be good for the wildlife. And another thing that comes with this is it can be good for putting carbon back into the soil. So a properly grazed rotational system, um, there's research now that shows that's going to increase your carbon sequestration. So ranchers are actually, um, some of them are getting involved with carbon credits as they develop virtual fence, because now you have the capacity to really manage this at a scale that that you can put carbon back in the soil with your rotational grazing. Right, because you have more, you can really access much more pasture in a way, right? Because you don't have to have it fenced off physically, which would cost you a lot of money. And so maybe you're not wanting to fence off as much land as you potentially have available to you. But with this 
new technology, you can keep moving them along instead of being stuck in one, two, three, four pastures and continually recycling through those. And yep. what is the impact of, of, I mean, you're talking about herds of elk and antelope. This, of course, is very foreign to us on, in the Northeast. We don't have those things. I mean, we do way up in Maine or whatever, but, but um, I, I wouldn't say that they compete uh, for feeding with cattle. And so can you talk a little bit about what what those what that wildlife looks at looks like in your area? Well, you know, our major grazers in Washington are elk and deer, some moose. Um, the each of those animals uses grass, which is what cattlemen want to have on the landscape. You know, they call it forage, we call it habitat, but it's the same stuff. Right. It's grass. And um, each of them uses it at different times of the year differently. You know, elk are typically more grazers. Deer are more browsers. They like to eat the brush. But they will do, do some uh, grazing on grass in the spring when it's really green and again in the fall when it greens up. So each animal has its, its need for that, that grass. Uh, we do have some antelope now in Washington. They've been uh, reintroduced by the Colville Confederated Tribes and the Yakima Nation. And huh. so we're learning about how more about them in our state, but you know, a fence will stop a herd of antelope. They will run along a fence for weeks and not cross it. Really? Um, Even though they could jump over it easily? They could, but that's just the way that it works. Um, Deer and elk will jump over it, but a lot of times they get tangled up in it. Yeah. Or especially with elk, when they do jump over it, they're they're actually doing damage to the fence. So it's just a such a, a neat tool now to have to avoid a lot of those problems. The other thing um, ranchers are figuring out is, you know, cattle are basically kind of lazy and they'll graze the, the less sloping areas before they'll go up a steep hillside. Yeah. But there's plenty of grass on that steep hillside. So they can now move their animals in a way that takes advantage of all the, all the forage out in that pasture right. um, better. And they can put fences to where they'll use some of that steeper ground and keep those animals in those areas. They can also take a look at some of the invasive species on the, on the property they're grazing. Cheatgrass is a good example. It greens up in the spring and you can graze it with, with cows and do some, set it back quite a bit. So it's not gonna be the main grass on your landscape, mm -hmm. but you gotta have fences to get around that cheatgrass and make it make a grazing system work. And you can't just put up a fence willy nilly, you know, at 20, it's $28,000 a mile. So now with a virtual fence, they can actually do some damage to that cheatgrass and kick it back a little bit in its life cycle. As well as there's some ranchers now putting in fire breaks by grazing an area around their pastures down um, quite a bit more heavily to take some of that biomass out. So if a fire does come, they've helped create a fire break. Wow, I never thought of that. But of course, in Washington State, you, as you mentioned at the top of the show, you've had quite a bit of wildfire activity um, even this summer. Despite California, for example, has been, I have some Californian friends here right this minute. And um, in previous years, they've been evacuated numerous times. And this year, and la this summer and last summer, they've been um, delightfully free of that problem and even have seen like excessive rain. What about in Washington State? You haven't had that same pattern? Oh, we, the reason we even heard about virtual fence was we had a five, five, six hundred thousand acres of rangeland burn back in 2020. Ah, and hmm. as I was talking to some of the ranchers that I knew and said, what are you going to do? All your fences are gone. It's a huge cost and a bunch of work. And the one rancher I was right. talking to, 
it. I'm not rebuilding it again. I'm tired of building fences. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for this new technology called virtual fence to come along. And so that's what started us down that oh, road. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. And we researching it together and finally came up with a pilot project. And we had another rancher that was very eager to to put virtual fence on the landscape um, up on the Colville Confederated Tribe lands. He had the grazing allotment there. So with, you know, just a couple of, I guess I'll call them brave ranchers, you know, that said, we're going to, we, we want to try something different. And we think this technology is, is what we're looking for. They, they put it on the ground and we helped them do that. And uh, that's kind of what kicked us off here in this state was getting things rolling. Fantastic. And do you think this will spread to other states where, like, say, Colorado or Texas or, you know, other big cattle producing states? Um, it's, it's in almost every Western state now. Like I said, there's 170 oh, right. projects um, on the landscape now. And these are mostly, like I said, bigger projects in the 5, 10, 20, 40,000 acre range. Um, they're on all sorts of different land, BLM ground. Um, there's projects. Nevada, Oregon, Wyoming, Colorado, Idaho, Montana. Um, I I live in uh, just 45 miles south of British Columbia, and because we're about connectivity, we, I work up in British Columbia as well, and we've got projects scheduled up there in British Columbia as well. Um, as soon as the company is ready to move into international sales, then we're going to have some things going on up in Canada as well. Wow! Should we be buying stock in Vents? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we asked that question when it was when they were a startup company, and then when they got taken over by Merck, you'd have to be buying stock in Merck. But oh, um, that's yeah, too bad. <laughs> but again, there's other companies coming in, you know, and yeah. so I think that's going to be a good thing. You're going to have different little different technologies, little different ways of setting it up. You know, right. some people might want to go through Vince, some might want to go through Gallagher, or any other company that decides to get into this virtual fence right. world. So, um, that's coming down the road too. I, I love hearing about stuff like this. To be honest with you, when I first started, I'm, I'm going to digress here because that's what I do, Jay. I like to digress. That's why I have to have an outline. But anyway, um, I'm just going to tell you now that the reason I asked that question is when I first started doing this show, which is I'm in my 14th year now. When I first started doing the show, one of the first people that I interviewed, probably in the second or third year of my tenure here, was um, a guy who was promoting something called Bion Tech. And Bion Tech is a waste management system for cattle. And actually for any livestock, but primarily towards in, in the cattle thing. And it's a sort of closed loop technology. You know, it's, uh, you know, they, you funnel the solids and the liquids through this reactor and they create a variety of products out of it. Um, and they're also branching out now into actually raising cattle themselves because they saw that people really wanted to get away from sort of the CAFO model and into something a little more holistic. And um, and by God, I bought stock in it. And it went down, down, down. Yes, I did. I had a little extra cash. I thought, I think this is such a great idea. And remember, we're talking 12, 13 years ago. Nobody was really thinking about methane digesters at that time. Like it was not a common technology. People, yeah. they didn't care how much manure they spread on fields. You know, like nobody was seeing the dead zone in the Gulf hadn't, I mean, it was there, but it hadn't really been, 
it wasn't the size it is now and it hadn't been identified. The sources for it, point sources for it, had not really been thoroughly cataloged, at least not to my knowledge at the time. So anyway, um, it it has not, I I can't say that I have made a million dollars on this. In fact, I've made about, I don't know, 10 cents on the dollar of what I spent. (laughs) But I'm hanging on to it because I see these technologies as the future. And so I'm, I'm saying to anybody who's listening to this show now, like, I don't particularly want to support Merck, not my favorite company, um, but um, any other company that's doing this that isn't affiliated with a drug company that's rapidly uh, diminishing our antibiotic arsenal, um, I'm happy to support that. That sounds super cool. Um, I had a couple more questions for you. One was um, you did mention earlier in the show, and I, I kind of want to d- drill down on this for a second, but you said that the the collars help monitor the health of the animal, meaning that you can determine when a cow is in estrus, and you can determine whether a cow is sick. What you know? Tell us a little bit about those benefits to this particular product. So currently, it's a GPS unit, so you'll know where your animal is. Actually, your screen shows an icon of all your animals in all your pastures, and as they move, they you know it moves on your screen at home. One of our ranchers who does workshops, uh, Mike and Joy Wilson up here, they do a, a great job of putting on workshops for other ranchers. And it's in their living room showing how the computer system works and how you can keep track of your animals, how you can um, move them through the landscape. So that exists now. The new technology I'm talking about, I think, is you know when the merge came with Merck, it's in their animal husbandry division. So they're yeah. trying... That's in the future. That hasn't happened yet, but they'll be able to get a lot of better um, information from that collar that that animal's wearing through the whole grazing season on its health, how well it's grazing, what its heat cycle is, what its uh, if there's stress hormones. You know, there's there's stuff we don't even know yet that they're going to be working on. But that was one of the reasons Merck wanted to merge uh, with Vance or actually um, acquire it. Yeah, acquire it because they see advantages for animal health. Wow. Uh, the other thing I'd wanted to mention is, um, you know, my background in NRCS, it didn't take me long to figure that there's a lot of cost share programs that you get through the federal government, USDA, NRCS, and, and their equip program, for instance. And I thought, boy, this has to become a cost shareable program with NRCS. So this spring, I was back in D.C. and met, went and met with some of the NRCS folks, and they're definitely all over this. It's going to take them a little time to, to get it up and running, but I, I would predict that soon we'll be seeing... Um, through the mainstream NRCS equipped cost share or other types of cost share that's available, um, there'll be a way to get some of these um, vents um, systems put on the ground with help from the USDA. Mm-hmm. So you're not you're not stuck holding the bag on a big, a very big outlay, um, right? Because fencing, you know, goes in sort of gradually and over time. And even though, yes, it sounds absolutely shocking that it costs twenty eight thousand dollars a mile to install fencing. Nobody is. I mean. I, I suspect that it is fairly rare that you have to install a mile of fencing all at once. Or am I completely off base with that? Obviously, after a wildfire, it's a different story. But, but um, yeah, it's the thing is, uh, it can be hundreds of miles that have been on the landscape for you know different times of of different years that they were put on the landscape. Right. But for instance, when a fire comes through. I mean, it it takes out a lot of miles of fence, hundreds of miles um, of cross fences, and that's the, mainly what we're talking about. So there are government programs will help you, emergency funds that will come in and help you rebuild that fence. 
But I mean, again, that's just taxpayers' money being used to put fences on the landscape, which are needed for proper grazing. But they're going to be, you know, go through another fire. They're going to have cattle increasingly run. vulnerable to this to yeah. wildfire, and specifically. And then, of course, you mentioned that you know these other animals that live within that habitat are are crossing those fences, however they can. Maybe not an antelope, but elk and moose and deer and so on are. They're getting tangled up in those fences. And we've all seen YouTube videos of somebody trying to get a deer untangled from a barbed wire fence. I mean, that's no joke, right? So, right. And in fact, you know, like sage grouse, it's an endangered species in our state. Yeah. Uh, a state endangered species. And we have about 500 of them left. So if you, you lose 20 of them by hitting barbed wire fences, and they do, they get tangled up in barbed wire fences all the time. You know, that's a significant hit to your population of a remaining species. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, Jay, was, was is there, do ranchers perceive these other inhabitants of grazing land, so, you know, all these other ruminants, are, are they competing? I mean, do they, like, is one, is there going to be a barrier to doing this because people don't want those animals grazing on their pasture? Like, I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm thinking like if I were a rancher and I had, you know, my cattle were directed towards one pasture or another and I suddenly saw, you know, a herd of 300 elk come through and munch away my pasture, what, how would I feel about that as a rancher? Would I be mad? Well, let's see, I'm adding it up here. I think I have now 45 years of working in conservation with wildlife and ranchers and cattle. And I've never run across a rancher that didn't appreciate and enjoy the wildlife that occurs on the land they either owned or grazed. And that's, ah. that's totally honest. I mean, they have as much uh, appreciation of that wildlife as any of the folks that aren't ranchers. And in fact, mm-hmm. sometimes I think they know more about it than even the rest of us who are you well. know, conservationists or environmentalists. I, to me, the ranchers have always been the first level of conservationists. I mean, uh-huh. they live on that land, they know it, and they can see and I think research is really starting to show that too, that this can be done in a way. You can use that that grass, that forage that a rancher wants to have for his cattle. It's also used by wildlife as habitat and or feed um, work out together. You know? And so we've got some projects going on in this state with WSU and whatnot researching that. Um, so we're excited to see now to have the tools like virtual mm-hmm. fence that can really make that happen we haven't we've been seeing the ranchers being excited about the use of virtual for wildlife as much as their cattle so uh-huh well that's great that's a really happy story i love it jay thank you we have to close it here but thank you so so much for joining me today super cool story i usually do doom and gloom and bad news all around and this is just lovely what a refreshing experience <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I should be retired, but this is too much fun and I'm seeing something so much good stuff happening on the landscape. I can't quit right now. So oh, yeah. That's fantastic. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much. And you know, anytime, keep me posted. This uh Wednesday happens every week, always looking for guests. So if you have another cool technology you want to talk about or another company that you want to you know talk about or something. Uh, I'm always interested in a pitch, so do feel free to contact me. Thank you, Katie. Thank you so much, and thank you to my sponsors. As always, um, next week we'll talk soon, folks. Have a good one, and until then, enjoy your week.
What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.